Today's a good day. Every time this year, I or one of us will remind you that you are a member of the Covenant College community, but one of our goals for you as part of this community is to recognize that you are part of a much greater story, a much larger story than this particular campus, than your particular life. Because as a community and as individuals, we seek to live faithfully before the God of Abraham and Naomi, the God of Matthew and Mary. We seek to live faithfully before the God of Sister Macrina and Bernard of Clairvaux. But at Covenant, we are also a school that sees its heritage as part of the Protestant Reformation in particular. With the first reformers, we unashamedly hold to the primacy of God in all things, to the sufficiency and authority of scripture, and to the radical nature of the gospel of grace, uniquely understood and actualized and realized in the unique person of Jesus Christ. Now this year, as you know from various speakers, we are celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, and we will be having two special academic lectures, one in the fall right now and one in the spring. And in the spring, we will be having Dr. Timothy George, who's a leading uh, historian and theologian of the Protestant Reformation, and he will be helping us understand its importance historically and theologically. But for these Reformation Day lectures, we wanted to do something slightly different. Rather than looking back, we wanted to look to our present and to the future, to ask, growing out of the Protestant Reformation, how might we continue some of the insights, biblically, experientially, theologically, that have been so valuable to us, but how might we think about them in light of the global church? in light of what God might do over the next 500 years? What might faithfulness look like for us in that context? And in light of that particular question, it seemed appropriate to ask Dr. Richard Pratt to serve as our Reformation Day lecturers this year. Tomorrow morning, Dr. Jones will give a little bit more personal information in his intro, but I'll just tell you this, Dr. Pratt, his PhD is from Harvard, a little school called Harvard, he served as a seminary professor at Reform Theological Seminary for many years. And I will just tell you, I've sat under a lot of teachers in my day, and I can honestly say Dr. Pratt is one of the best teachers I've ever sat under in my entire life. With that said, I hope you come to the afternoon lecture. So Dr. Pratt, since the 90s, has devoted his time to third millennial ministries, which he helped to found. And I will just, basically the goal there is for them to provide theological and biblical training to people around the world, anyone who wants to learn about the Bible and grow, to give them quality education in their own language for free. And that's what he spends his time doing. So there will be a lecture today, right now in chapel. Tomorrow we'll have chapel at the same time. And then today at 4 p.m. in Sanderson 215, there'll be a, a lecture, but also an extended time for discussion. Come with your questions about the American church, the global church, 
about the kingdom of God and our place in it. You won't be disappointed. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Richard Pratt. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Never try to repeat the past. It's gone. But don't ever forget it. That's what I want to say to you today. Don't think of being a part of the Protestant Reformation as going back to something. We're not going back any more than Jesus is going back. We're going forward. So don't try to repeat the past, but never forget the past. When the Protestant Reformation happened and this guy did his thing, have you seen this? How many of you have one of these? This is the hottest action figure on Amazon. I'm serious. It will be a collector's item. Get it. Can you tell what it is? It's little. It's Martin Luther. With a Bible, <laughs> with German words on it, and a pen, and a hat, and so you need to get one, okay? Hottest thing on Amazon, better get it. You should order it right now. They don't have permission to have their phones out, is that right? <sighs> I'm tempted to say, go ahead and order it right now on your phone. <laughs> anyway, get it today before they're all gone. In his day, the world was in upheaval. Things were changing in very dramatic ways. In his day, in Eric Zwingli's day, in John Calvin's day, they're the ones we usually think of when we think the Protestant Reformation. There were others, many unnamed, but there were many others whose names we do know. The world was changing dramatically. And here's what's so wonderful for you. It is changing just as dramatically now as it was then. And Christianity was a part of that change it was shifting, tectonic shifts were taking place, both by design and by, shall we say, happenstance or providence, we should say in this place, I guess. And the same thing is happening right now. Do you know that Christianity is on the down when it comes to Western culture where it has been so strong for so long? Are you aware of that? You can nod your head. This is not Sunday morning church. Good. Are you aware that Christianity, while it's going down in the places that you and I live, that in other parts of the world is doing just great? And those shifts, those global shifts, call for something, just like it called for something in Martin Luther's day. It calls for you and me to perpetuate the Reformation for the next 500 years. Now, for me personally, being someone who has been at this for a few years anyway, it actually had a big effect on me to think about the future. And what I'm going to do, because Dr. Capic asked me to do this, is to talk with you about what being reformed or what being in this Reformation tradition and looking ahead at the next 500 years, not at the past 500 years, but the next 500 years, what effect that had on me. And all I can tell you, is, as I try to summarize something that's very complicated in my own life, is that it had a major effect on the priorities of my life, my Christian life. I have been a Christian for a long time, but the priorities of my life shifted 
when I finally realized that I lived in a world that was radically different than what my parents lived in and what my grandparents lived in and generations before. A world where Christianity was shifting from my North American context to where its center was in other parts of the world, and you know where those places are, Asia, Latin America, and especially in Africa. Well, when I finally realized that and began to ask the question, okay, Richard, what are you going to do with your life in the light of what God is doing? I had to have radical changes in my priorities. I had to decide what was most important, not just for me, but even for the kingdom of God all over the world. And it took me from one kind of life to a very different kind of life. Now, there are lots of places in the Bible where I could point to you and say, this is the passage that gives you the priority that affected me so much, but I want to deal with a passage that most of you are familiar with, I assume you are. We usually call it the Lord's Prayer. And now, rather than me read that to you at this point, what I want to do is ask us to recite it together. So let's just do it real quickly. Do you have debtors or trespassers here? Debtors, okay, okay, so if you're a trespasser, you're off the hook, okay? Debtor, you've got problems. Okay, so here we go. Remember how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Okay, so now you got it. Most of you in this room today, like me, most of us can find the center of our Christian lives somewhere in that prayer. And it's not surprising, because after all, when do you pray except when important things are happening in your life? I mean, you may be the kind of Christian that never prays. You know, the kind that goes to bed at night, you put your head on your pillow and say, oh, I haven't prayed all day. Lord, please bless. And you're gone. Okay, you may be that kind of Christian, but let me tell you, if something big happens in your life, you're going to start to pray. Your parents start breaking up, you're going to pray. You get sick or your brothers and sisters get sick, you're going to start praying. When you get out of here and you can't find a job, you're going to start praying. It's amazing, isn't it? Important things... Important things we start praying for. So when Jesus is asked, Lord, teach us how to pray, he's not just telling us how to pray. He's telling us what ought to be important to us. And most of us can find ourselves somewhere in that prayer. Yep, that's what's important to me. But if you are a follower of Jesus, and typical for an American follower of Jesus, I can tell you where you can find yourself in that prayer. It's in the bottom half. You know how it goes. Give us this day our daily bread, which means basically, please take care of me. Forgive us our debts, which means, I'm sorry, I did it again, please forgive me. Lead us not into temptation, which means basically, help me do better tomorrow than I did today, please. Uh, but did you notice that there's a common word among all three of those petitions at the bottom? Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. And in reality, we realize those petitions are about us, but usually when we pray them, it's more like, 
Give me this day my daily bread. Forgive me my debts. Lead me not into temptation. Now, if that's where you are, if you could honestly say, yep, those are the important things in my Christian life, way to go. You are way ahead of most of the world. Because most of the world doesn't have anything even close to that as an orientation, as a purpose, as a center, as a high priority in life. But I want to suggest to you today that the Reformation was really not driven by the bottom half of the Lord's Prayer. That the priorities that made this man and the others like him do what they did, it did not have to do so much with the bottom half of the Lord's Prayer, but the top half. Because the top half sets the stage for the bottom half. And you know how that first part goes. It's the part you go through real quickly so you can get down to something that means something to you. Give us this day our daily bread. That other part, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Got the difference? The Protestant reformers were captivated, not so much by the things that normally preoccupy Christian people, give me, give me, give me, but rather you, you, you. That's what happened to me. I had the easiest job a human being could possibly have. I was a seminary professor teaching people like Dr. Capon, teaching people like Dr. Wingard, teaching people like Dr. Jones. They were all students of mine. Don't you love them? Yeah. Yeah. Uh Easiest job in the world. You only work seven and a half months a year. And the last 10 years of my career, I was working one morning a week, seven and a half months a year, in Orlando, Florida. Now, that's a hard life, I'm telling you. But now, I don't do that. Now, I have this ministry that takes up about 60 to 70 hours a week of my life every week. It keeps me on the road doing things like this all the time. Why would a person do that? It's because God got into me and made me realize that what made the Reformation happen 500 years ago and what will propel it forward into the next 500 years is when God's people began to stop living in the bottom half of the Lord's Prayer and start living in the top half of the Lord's Prayer. So let's take a look at it. Jesus was calling on his disciples to do some adjusting in their lives, some changings in the ways that they, well, things they believed about certain things and things they felt about them, the ways they behaved about certain things. And the first thing that Jesus challenged his disciples to change, to do some adjusting on, was what they believed about God. You know that's where it begins. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Wow. Our Father, uh, those are precious words to Christians. In fact, most Christians throughout history have not even called this the Lord's Prayer. What have they called it? Does anybody know? You're good. You're Reformed. Way to go. You're really Protestants. You don't even know, do you? Most Christians in the history of the world, other than us, have called this simply Our Father. Why? Because... What Christianity teaches about God is 
unbelievable. The one who made everything. I mean, the billions of galaxies out there that we cannot measure, down to the nano world that we cannot see, and everything in between, the one who made all of that, the one who sustains all of that, the one who makes all of that happen, can become your personal spiritual father so that he knows your name, he cares about what you care about. When you're down, he's down with you. When you're up, he's up with you. Just like a good human father would be, God who made everything can be that for you. Now, it's important for me to say to you that if you don't know God in that way, it's not that hard. All you have to do is come to Jesus because to as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become the children, the children of God. But you know as well as I do that when it comes to the American context and the American situation in Christianity especially, when we hear those words, our Father, an image of God pops into our heads. It's the image of God as a sweet old granddaddy sitting up in heaven, big long white beard, rocking back and forth in his rocking chair like this, looking down on the earth and just wringing his hands in agony as he looks down at what all these little kids down there on this planet are doing. Oh, I wish they just paid more attention to me because if they would just pay more attention to me, I'd make them happy. And after all, I'm God and I exist to make them happy. I have some good news for you. Jesus was not giving us something as trivial as that when he said, our Father. It's something much grander than that. And we get the first clue from the fact that Jesus doesn't say pray, our Father. What does he say? He says, pray, our Father in heaven. Now, all you Bible people, where are the Bible department people? Where are you? Admit it. Come on, it's all right. Are they ashamed of you? Apparently, huh? All right, the Bible people will know the answer to this. Every single time the Bible talks about heaven, it's not God's living room where he sits in a rocking chair. Every single time, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, the picture's the same. Heaven is the throne room of God. It's where God sits on a throne and blinding light radiates from him. A river of fire pours out from beneath the throne and around him are these creatures bizarre, six-winged creatures who are saying day and night, holy, 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 holy be your name. That's the picture Jesus is referring to. God on his throne, our Father in heaven. Now, you might be surprised to know this, but in the Old Testament days and New Testament days, both in Israel and outside of Israel, it was very common for people to refer to their human kings as their fathers. Our father David did not mean that he was the father of every single person in Israel. What it meant was he's our king, our father David. Jesus is reminding his disciples that the top priority of their lives must be this fundamental belief that the Christian faith has always held and that drove the Protestant reformers to sacrifice their lives for the sake of the kingdom of God. And it's this. God is your king. Now Jesus spoke this way because he knew his Bible. And he knew that in the Bible, the most dominant picture or portrait of God is God as king. 
Not God your granddaddy, God your king. And that is a huge problem for you and me. Because if you are American, or if you have been influenced by Americans very much, and that's everybody here now, then I can tell you one thing. We don't have a clue what it means to say that God is our king. For us, kings are things of fairy tales. You know, Snow White and Sleeping Beauties and things like that. Kings are nothing that we have experienced. We have never lived under the authority of a king who holds your life and your death in his hands. So it's very hard for us to take this image from the Bible that God is our royal father enthroned in heaven and make sense out of it in practical life. We don't have much way to do that because we don't have any analogy from common experience for that. In fact, it's even worse than that. It's not just that we're ignorant of these sorts of things because of where we live and the world in which we live today. It's, it's worse than that. As American people, we are absolutely opposed to the idea of kingship. I come from Virginia, just up the road in Roanoke, Virginia. And uh, I, you know, I, I really like Virginia, but the thing I like about it most, as I go around telling people about it, is the flag of the Commonwealth of Virginia. Is anybody else from Virginia? I know one, two, three, oh, okay. Will you please verify that what I'm about to say is true? Hope they listened to it when they were in class. State flag of Virginia is the best state flag in the world. I don't know where they got these ideas for Georgia and Tennessee. What kind of flags are those anyway, huh? But Virginia is really good. It's a nice, solid blue satin background. Ooh, yeah. Makes you want to sleep on it. So nice. And in the middle of that flag is a circle. Most people know that much. But I want to take you inside the circle. It's a portrait of you and me. Here it is. Inside the circle of the Virginia state flag. It's a picture of a man lying dead on his back on the ground. And next to him is a crown on the ground that's fallen off of his head. You got the picture? He's a dead king. Okay. And standing over this dead king is a woman who has a spear in her hand and her foot on the chest of this dead king. You got it? Woman with a spear, foot on the chest of a dead king, and written inside that circle are these words in Latin, sic semper Tyrannus, thus always to tyrants. Got the message? We will not have a king in the state of Virginia. If someone tries to become our king, we know exactly what to do. Our women will go after them. <laughs> and they'll take care of them. We will not have a king in the state of Virginia. Why not? Now, you know, I don't believe that's just a Virginian attitude. I think that's your attitude, too. Do you want a king to rule over you? No. Do you want somebody to hold your life and your death in his hands? No. Do you want somebody who's going to be your sovereign ruling over you? No. Are you insane? I don't want that. I want to be free. Sick semper tyrannis. Why do we have such an aversion to this idea that you might have a human king rule over you. I think we know why, even if you haven't experienced it. If you, if you have human kings around you, they're terribly inconvenient to have around. 
you know, they think things like their honor is more important than yours. They think that their glory is more important than your glory. They think their agenda is more important than your agenda. It's really crazy, but they think you ought to be happy to serve their purposes. It's even worse than that. Kings believe that you ought to be happy to die for their purposes. And when you have people like that around you, it is not convenient. You don't get to do what you want to do. You don't live the way that you want to live. So is there any wonder then why we don't want to have human kings? It's just terribly inconvenient. Now let me tell you something. I think that says something about us and our faith. If your Christianity has become convenient, and by that I mean something that is, well, it just sort of fits like a hand in glove into your life. You know, I was raised in the church, and I went to Sunday school all my life, and, and my mama likes me being a Christian, my daddy likes me being a Christian, and I've been a good boy, a good girl, and I come to Covenant College, and everything's just fine, I just fit right in, and I just love it here. If that's your life, if you can hear the Word of God preached to you, and you don't ask yourself, how do I need to change if you don't hear the word of God and the mission that Jesus has given to you and you, ask, and you don't ask the question, how do I need to change my life radically? If your Christianity has become convenient, then maybe, just maybe, you still don't know what it means to say that God is your king. Martin Luther, John Calvin, et al. They knew something. They did not want to live under the tyranny of human kings because they wanted to live under the authority and the benevolence of the divine king. That's why Jesus calls him our royal father. It's because unlike every other authority you will ever meet, whether satanic, demonic, or human, our God is a good king. He has your best interest in mind. He is benevolent and kind and will not call you to anything but what will turn into good for you and for the world. But what we do so very often is we pull back from that. And you've heard it. Oh, Christianity is not a matter of duty. Christianity is a matter of love. Christianity is not a matter of responsibility. Christianity is a matter of grace. Christianity is a matter of love. In fact, that's what the lecture this afternoon is about. Christianity is a matter of grace. But Christianity is a religion that is devoted to the service of the king of the universe. And that requires our faithful conformity to his will. Our number one priority, according to the Lord's Prayer, is that God's name would be kept holy, that his purposes would be realized, 
that his destiny will become our destiny. Now, we live in a country where one of our presidents made a very popular statement. We hear it, it rings in our ears, that we have a government that is of the people, by the people, and for the people. Can anybody tell me who said that? Starts with an A. Thank you very much, Abraham Lincoln, good. Good job, good job. Are you a history major or something? Well, the history majors should have been saying, they should have even known all the controversies about where it came from and things like that. But, you're right. That's America. Government that is of the people, by the people, and for the people. Well, let me tell you something. When you grow up in a culture that has that as its, as its ideal, it isn't long before you have religion that is of the people, by the people, and for the people. This is a time in your life when you have the opportunity to stretch yourself out of the convenient and into the Reformation. This is a time in your life when you can actually sit back and ask God, the Lord Jesus, our Savior, what would you have me do with my life? And I can tell you this, when you listen to the royal Father in heaven and you do what he calls you to do, it will not be convenient, but it will be good. It will be glorious. And you will be a part of the great kingdom of our royal Father in heaven. Could you want any more than that? If the next 500 years are going to continue the good things that happened 500 years ago this week, then we need a whole generation of people who can say, I'm not going to live just out of the bottom half of the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to live in the top half. I'm going to do some adjusting in my life. And this is how it goes. Our royal Father enthroned in heaven, may your name be kept holy. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we love you, we adore you, that you have not left us without direction, you have not left us without purpose, not left us without vision. But Holy Spirit, we pray now, we can hear these words and they can pass over us just like so many other good words pass over us. Please, Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see these things, enliven our minds to hear them, accept them, remember them. And Lord, please empower us with the power you used to raise Jesus from the dead, to raise us into newness of life. And as you do that, we will honor you for it. Amen.